Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Jess and Peyton West. It's June 21st, 2022. We're at the Nicholson Library at Linfield University. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the first question, as you may know, to get us started is why wine? Hmm. Do you want to go first on this one? Sure. Um, wine is delicious. Um, I started in the coffee industry as a high school <laughs> and college student. And then I began drinking wine and I enjoyed that, and I enjoyed the culture of it. And I realized wine drinkers are more fun than coffee drinkers, so I just sort of pursued that. I went further with it. Yeah, that's a, definitely a large question. I think for me, um, I started out in music, and that was my passion for a very long time, and it still is, but it, I wanted it to be my profession, and through that, I kind of, it kind of led me into wine and my family always had, my dad was a chef in Austin for a while and we always grew up drinking really nice wine with really good food. So it was very much a cultural thing and I traveled to Germany when I was young, experienced kind of what wine meant to the old world as well from a cultural and family perspective. And I just kind of fell in love with that. And then as I started working in the business, I loved, I'm kind of a hyperactive person. So I <laughs> love that there's like, there's physical labor involved, there's creativity, there's science, there's all these amazing things that are all challenging and it's all wrapped up into this agricultural product that you can't control. And so it's like from a perfectionistic standpoint, you're, it's so addicting because it's like I can do everything perfectly and then there's just like this one thing that's thrown into the mix and it always causes variability and everything. And so I, I really love that every year it's, it's not, you know, I'm not going to sit at my desk and have the same thing happen over and over again. I'm gonna come in and solve problems and then hopefully fix them to the best of my ability. And then like next year, I have to do the exact same thing, but in a much different fashion. So all of that is great because it allows you to try to experience something that is truly representative of that year, um, which is rare. I don't, there's not a lot of professions where you get to do that. And so I just loved all that mixed together and I just, got addicted to it. Oh. All right, so let's back up for a second and talk about kind of life before wine. So Jess, let's start with you. Uh, where were you born and raised and what was kind of your, you mentioned coffee as a yep. starting point. What was your kind of path after coffee? Um, I was born in Eugene, Oregon. And uh, my sister-in-law now was running a coffee shop. So in high school, I started working there. And then I just continued working in coffee throughout high school and college. And I also began, so I managed a coffee shop in, after college, and we started to introduce wine to that program. So I started to taste wine, I started to get really interested in buying, and then I realized I have no idea how any of this made. So I did contact a really tiny winery in the area called Noble Estate, and I just said, hi, I wanna learn how to make wine. <laughs> Can I come just like hang out at your place? And Mark Jarosevich, who was the owner at the time, was like, yep, come up here, I need someone. And he put me in the tasting room, but it was one of those um, like 
while you're waiting for customers, you like go label wines and do lab work and like just whatever is available on the property to do. So I did that a couple days a week, which was really fun. I loved it. I loved having customers that drank wine. Everyone was in a good mood. Everyone was happy. Everyone was like, we're on vacation or we're just out drinking. And I was like, you guys are lovely. You're not the coffee drinkers. <laughs> so um, I did meet a guy at the coffee shop that went through the Chemeketa program. And he was like, yeah, I played as a vineyard. Um, I went through this program. So I was like, oh, I should maybe look into that program. So I did look into that program, but it was in Salem. So at some point after that, I started taking one class a week at Chemeketa, just the basic classes. And that's how I got introduced into kind of that wine world a little bit. Before we move on to, to Peyton, I'm curious about uh, the, your kind of introduction to wine education, what did you sort of, as you, as you hit that, like taking one class at a time, what did you think of wine education and what were the kind of the, the big sort of exciting points for you as you started to learn about wine in a more formal way? Um, the exciting parts were, I really enjoyed like the nuances of the wines. I would take, I would like take those little like wine spectator courses and just like buy a bunch of weird wines at Sundance and I would just taste through them and be like, okay, okay, okay. And that was really interesting. And then I just really liked the like gathering aspect of it and then meeting more people that worked in that business that also enjoyed it. So there was a very like celebratory thing about it that I really enjoyed, which was mostly why I got into it. But um, the education process was, you know, it's hard because you have to drink a lot of wine to learn about a lot of wine. So, and when you're on a budget, you have to do it slowly. <laughs> you can't just, and you can't just drink six bottles of wine. So it was, it's always been a slow process and I'm still learning, but um, yeah. So, and Chemeketa was really helpful because that was an opportunity to come and taste a bunch of different wines because that was the class. And we had like Bob Sogi and he had this amazing cellar that he had been collecting for decades. And Al so, McDonald. Yeah, so we were able to taste like really interesting older wines, stuff that you just would never ever have the opportunity to chance to, to try now. And Peyton, sort of same question for you. Tell us about, so you mentioned born and raised, you mentioned Austin as, as part of your, your upbringing. Uh, tell us about kind of path for you after school as well. Yeah, so um, I am originally from Texas, but I was originally um, raised in Houston, but I really am an Oregonian. I mean, we, we moved here, um, I think when I was about four years old, three or four years old. So I mean, I've spent the majority of 30 years in Oregon uh, out in Chehala Mountain ABA. But yeah, I mean, my parents moved us up here and um, we got lucky and it was just a random occasion that we were, we moved into, uh, a seven acre parcel of land that was adjacent to what would be Natalie's estate winery, which was like literally, you know, a pitching wedge away. I tested that. Uh, <laughs> you can hit the house from there. <laughs> and um, anyway, yeah, so it, later on, you know, probably five, eight years later, it became a winery. Um, and I, when I kind of went into my teen years, I was fully focused on music. When I hit like 13, I decided that my dream college was Berkeley College of Music in Boston. And so I, I basically just was full tilt on that and just going as, as, as much as I possibly could on music. And I had six different instructors and private lessons and everything just to get to that goal. 
And I ended up working summers um, to kind of in the winery to help pay bills and stuff like that, just for to have kind of walking around money. And I, I was in the cellar a lot because I couldn't I couldn't really pour. I wasn't 21. Um, and they didn't really need me in hospitality, so I worked a lot in the cellar. And then when I was 17, um, or when I, sorry, when I was 16, I went to Berkeley for this kind of like two week program, one week program that was fully focused on guitars, just all guitarists. And it went really, really well and I had a great time. And then I came back and said, all right, yeah, this is the place for me. And then I ended up going back again for a far lengthy more version of that, which is like their five week program. And you basically go to school like you would for four years in five weeks. I mean, it's just a ultra condensed, super intense, every, you know, music theory, vocal lessons, production, everything you could possibly imagine. Um, and that's when I chose my major, my minor, and I chose songwriting as a major, and then a minor was in a music business. Went there, had an amazing time, and won a couple of things, and then I ended up um, coming back home and I told my dad, like, I definitely want to do this. And so I applied, I got in, and like the dream had been fulfilled. And then I was basically about to fly out to Boston to go there for another, like for four years and move there. And then I, I, I decided that I didn't quite really want to make music a business. And it kind of felt like that it was going to rip away everything I loved about music. Um, not because of the college itself, just because of, I think, how I felt about music as being very personal to me. So I called my dad and I was like, I want to, I want to come back. Like, I, I just don't think this is what I want to do. And you're about to spend like a lot of money <laughs> at this college in Boston. And I think you probably should be aware that I don't know this direction. So uh, ended up coming back and he was super cool with it. And so was my mom. And they're like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I have no idea, but I want to keep working at Natalie's Estates and maybe start pouring wine eventually and doing all these things. And so that kind of led me to working more harvest at Natalie's Estate, really getting entrenched in it. And I used kind of my music side. I worked in some production. Uh, I worked in multiple different studios, recording people. I recorded my own album. I recorded other people's albums. Um, I built a studio just to do it one last kind of like final time. And then I just, I got this great gig at um, Pinner Ash as an intern, as a recommendation from Stoller, which I had also worked out in uh, hospitality. And then that was like, just it. That was 100% it. I loved it. Lynn Pinner Ash and Brian Irvine just like, they beat me up pretty bad, and they uh, they showed me what it was like to to really be in like you know a ten thousand. I think it was like probably ten to twelve thousand cases at that time, smaller than they are now. But it was my first like big experience, and then that's when I decided, okay, this is this is what I've been missing. This is something music couldn't offer me. This is what I want to do, and that's kind of where it all happened. And then from there, I started going to. Um, I started working in as much hospitality as I could because it was weekends, so that allowed me to go to school. And then that's when I joined the Chemeketa program, and I was tossing and turning at the time about going to OSU instead of um, Chemeketa, but you know, I'd already waste, not wasted, but I'd spent a lot of time you know, becoming a musician, and I didn't want to kind of go necessarily go through another full four years 
where a lot of my credits that I had earned might not really apply at all, you know, like production and music theory probably wouldn't go into agriculture very well. And so uh, I got lucky because I found out that the Schmechta program at that time had just inherited like all the old school OSU professors. And they were kind of retiring and slowing down and so they had moved out to Schmechta, a lot of the ones that Jess had mentioned. And I basically got, you know, a hyper-focused two-year degree through Chemeketa with all the old, like OG OSU instructors or professors, and it was great. I mean, it was like the perfect timing to do that through that program, and that's kind of that's where it that's where it led me to to graduate. And then after that, I you know obviously that's a, another question I'm sure, but that's that's <laughs> what happened after yeah school or for school. Lots of people always assume the next question. You can just keep answering if you want to. Yeah. Fine by me. Uh, again, before we get on to the, the next step, um, I'm curious for you with that. You mentioned you, you kind of worked at Natalie's estate. That was kind of like an ongoing thing and you yeah. other places. What was it about the experience of Pinter Ash that was so sort of enlightening for you or so exciting for you that made you want to do more? Yeah, I mean, so Natalie's is great because it was so small. It was like 1,500 cases, max 2,000 cases. So it was just Boyd Teagarden, the owner and winemaker, and myself, really, for the most part. I mean, we had some other interns, but for, for, for a two-year period of time, it was mostly just myself and my dad and Boyd. And so it was very hands-on. Um, but the thing about Pinter Ash is that, you know, you have Lynn, who is this, like, just queen of winemaking and ultra-talented and, like, you know, not, I don't want to say Natalie's is not professional, it's very professional, but Pinter Ash is at a much different level at the time um, for Pinot and for Chardonnay and for or Pinot Gris and Riesling and Viognier and they used to make Syrah and, you know, Natalie's was this kind of really boutique and it was all Washington varietals, old Cab, Cab Franc and all these things and so for Pinter Ash it was like I went from this, you know, like box of a winery that was great and functional to this like beautifully designed gravity fed facility and it was intimidating you know I mean the press was as big as like my house you know like it was insane and you know they had their own estate and like the view is crazy and they had a whole team working there they had a denologist they had an assistant winemaker you know they had Lynn it's like it was a, a big big process in comparison to where I was at and so you know it's a big it opens your minds up to go wow like this really is a whole nother beast and now I can now I need to learn how to tackle this and then you know, first of all, the wines that we were crafting were, that they were crafting were exceptional, and they always have been, but it was premier Pinot Noir from a perspective that I had never personally worked with. I had mostly worked with different varietals, and, you know, it was kind of the beginning of me, I would just turn 21 at that time, so I was tasting around the valley as much as I could and really trying to wrap my head around what Pinot is and what Pinot should be and what my favorite expressions were. And, you know, she kind of encompassed like all that for me. And then to see that there was this lab, like I didn't even know what a lab looked like. You know, I saw a lab, I thought like I'm at the doctor's office. I didn't, had no idea, you know? And so seeing this whole lab dedicated to just wine analysis and sensory evaluation was like, well, this is cool, like this is a whole, part of my brain that I could, I could I could get to use and I could learn and then I you know the the whole experience of working in that cellar with really large awesome glycol you know 
um, controlled tanks and multiple different barrel hauls and all these different fermentation tactics and learning why a pump over is done when it's done and why a punch down is conducted when it is and how long to press for and when to make your press cuts and what do you want to barrel it down to? Do you want to go into stainless? Do you want to take lees? Do you not want to take lees? Do you want to go into French oak? Do you want to go into old French oak? Like it was all these things. I mean, just like my mind was kind of blown and all the mystery of what wine was was kind of like starting to become revealed to me of like there's a lot that goes into this and there's so many different facets that you could learn and then of course like you know the team there um, with Lynn being who she was and still is at the time like so she was she really like was hard on on me when I made a mistake or I was a stupid 21 year old kid or whatever it was and she really just kind of you know, instilled a lot of, whether she knows it or not, she instilled a lot of things in me from a work ethic perspective and from a quality perspective. And then Brian, just like the assistant winemaker at the time, he, I mean, I, you know, everything I did was horrible to him. Like everything. <laughs> I never like received a compliment or anything or like, good job, kid, nothing. I mean, he just like kept on me the entire time. And I liked that. Yeah, I guess it was a punk. But <laughs> I, I liked that. Like I liked, I thrive under put, being put under pressure. And I like when people give me a hard time about things because then I'll show up 15 to 20 minutes earlier to make sure I get it right. And it just really like, it's kind of that, you know, if you work in the kitchen and you're a chef kind of thing, like as you're coming up, like you're, you're being put under a lot, immense amount of pressure and you're trying, if you care about it, it's an amazing place to be in. If you don't care about it, then you're going to take, if you're just an intern there for the hours, you're, you know, it's almost a waste of all those talent, like those, pe those people's talent and their time. Cause if they, if you do ask questions and you do want to learn, it shouldn't be easy, but it's a waste of everyone's time if you don't really just absorb all of it. So to me, that's where I was at that time. I was in that place where this is what I want to do. I just given up one of my largest passions and, and spent a lot of time on it and a lot of money and, and Berkeley. And now if I'm going to do this, I need to really focus on it. And they gave me that opportunity. And that's probably why it was the most important. So what point do your two stories intersect? <laughs> Jamaica. Yeah. 2014. Yep. We were, um, it was kind of a weird coincidence, but we were both relatively at the same point of our curriculum, right? We were like, you were ahead of me. Barely, but not, not a whole bunch. Yeah. Um, and we had met in a chemistry class. It was chemistry of wine, anal wine, wine, wine analysis, analysis and yeah. must, I think. Mm -hmm. And, um, we became lab partners on the main campus. Yeah. Chemistry class. So that's almost. That's Isn't almost, that that's funny? I know. Yeah, I know. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Almost every time we tell that, you know, tell that story, everyone's like, "So you, that means you must have had." Like, <laughs> you guys have a chemistry. You have good chemistry, and it's like, okay, yep. yeah, that's the seventeenth time we've heard that. But Except that's that we fine. didn't. Yeah, I mean, she did like me very I just, much. I just turned thirty, and he was twenty-five. And I thought he was a punk, a punk kid, it's of the course. Second, that's record show, that's like the third or second time I've been called that. Two. Just, just want yep. to make that clear. But we were good partners. We had another person in our group, too. Yep. Yep. And it was a mutual person that we knew, so we ended up together in this group. Yeah. But, um, yeah. And we were lab partners throughout that entire class. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of 
we basically, I mean, we, we went through that program together, and after that class where we were lab partners, we, we still, like, we would study together, we would hang out together, um, and then we, would, we ended up taking other classes as well together, and we tried to kind of, I think, at Chemeketa, it was such a small program that you couldn't necessarily, like, choose which, like, what's, there was, like, like, probably only one of those classes. So it made it easy for us to always be together because we had no choice. But we didn't really yeah. start dating for a while. We didn't start dating for we a while. We would meet yeah. for homework, yeah. meet for, you know, margaritas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then we went on a wine taste, we went wine tasting. And I was still yeah. living in Eugene and he was living in Salem. So yep. I drove up and we went out and tasted at five places or something. We tasted a lot of places, and yeah. Then, yeah. Then we fell in love. Yeah. And then shortly after that, we went to Walla Walla. Yeah. Like two weeks later. Two weeks later, on our first on our first date, which really wasn't supposed to be a date, mm -hmm. we decided that this is so much fun. We're gonna like let's just go ahead and plan that we're gonna try. Like we're gonna we're gonna go to Walla Walla together. And we didn't really. I, I mean, could have been the wine. We're like let's go to Walla Walla together. <laughs> and then it ended, that ended up being a date. And then why shouldn't we go to Walla Walla together? So, so we, we did. so we did that. We spent a couple of days there. And it was clear that like we both, our passion for wine was kind of aligning at that time. So it was a very like super happy part of our life because we're falling in love, but we were also like realizing that, hey, you want to do the same thing that I want to do. And, you know, going out and tasting and becoming educated via all the different places you can together and then coming home and having dinner and talking about it, it's like, it's it just the, the brain growth on that, it, it becomes kind of multiplied because you have a conversational piece with another, you know, your person at a table diagnosing everything that had gone on in the tastings or what you had for dinner with wine or whatever it is. And so all of a sudden, it like, it's always a lot easier to diagnose wines or break them down or become creatively thinking about things when you're with someone else. And that's why it's always so important to have, you know, like a tasting group, you know, like Jess mentioned, when you're trying to learn as much about wine as possible, you know, it's expensive. <laughs> and, you know, you can't just drink six bottles of wine. So that's why there's, you know, all these sommeliers, they, they have their own tasting groups. And so we kind of became our, like, our own little tasting group, which is the two of us. And we, it was a pretty special time because we just learned a lot mm -hmm. about everything in Oregon together. Yep. Yeah. So at the, at the time when you met, and you're, and you're starting, you're both kind of se uh, separately, but also not together, kind of developing this passion for wine. Tell me about what you were kind of looking ahead to. What was what was your hope or your plan or your goal in the industry? Did you have something in mind that you were working toward, either either of you separately or, or together? Yeah, Peyton had just come back from Sonoma working harvest, and I was about to, I was ready to like leave Eugene. I had worked harvest at Bethel Heights, and I was ready to move north, so that we could I could we could move in together and be more immersed in the North Valley for me. And so I think we're both really wanting production jobs, but we we're both still going to school. So we were I mean I took every job that was offered to me. I was like I'll take anything. I need to make money. And I went through several places. <laughs> and then, so we, but our, our goal was to like, we both want to be in production and maybe we both have sales backgrounds and wines. So we're like, we're okay with that. We can, we can make that work. But in the end, we really both want to be yeah. in production. I, I wanted to be a head winemaker. That was the goal mm -hmm. for a high-end winery. That was, that was probably the, the end goal. And then I did want, I'd had hopes of at some point starting a brand. 
Um, but I didn't know what that was going to be. I didn't know whether that was going to be with anyone else. I didn't know if that was going to be, um, you know, what varietals it would be. I just knew that I wanted to, I knew that I could sell wine. And I knew that that's probably 80% of the battle. You know, making great wine is difficult to do, but it's not the hardest thing to do. So I always kind of felt like that I wanted to have a brand at some point and I wanted to be a head winemaker. But um, yeah, that was probably the goal for me. Yeah. So then take us through the progression. You mentioned you were both looking at production work. You're both still in school. Tell us some of the, some of the, some of the places you work, some of the places you, you kind of, you, some, of the, some of the roles you took on as you were working towards starting your own thing. Yeah. Um, I got a tasting room job at Lemelson, which was amazing. I love that brand. The wines are amazing. The people that work there are really awesome. And there happened to be a guy that was working with me that was like, hey, um, I worked Harvest last year at Harper Voigt, and I know that Drew Voigt is looking for like a seller person slash sales coordinator or something, and I can just give you his, give him your name. And I was like, sure, yeah, of course, like I'll do anything. So uh, I had never heard of Harper Voigt at that point. Like I feel like I kind of knew it, but I was like, I don't know who this is. And so I ended up meeting with Andrew, Andrew, and having beers and thinking, you know, I don't really know, like whatever. And they were like, yeah, come like come out, come visit, we wanna hire you. And I was like, why? I don't this is weird. Okay. Like I don't know you, you don't know me, but like I guess you like me for some reason. And then I decided, yes, I should do this. This is a good opportunity. There was all these clients coming into that business that were growing and I just I saw a lot of potential with growth there because there was yeah, people were just getting really into making wine with Drew and the clients the clients were just growing and growing. And so um, I just was like, I'm gonna stick it out and see what happens. Like this is a good opportunity and it was production and I knew that Drew was very smart. And um, and then at that point, like I started working there, Andrew left. And so Drew's like, get in here, like <laughs> come take over kind of thing. And I was like, oh my God. So I got full-time work immediately with Drew, like starting in May or June or something of that year. And so I quit Lemelson and transitioned into Harper Voigt full-time as a salesperson and a seller person. So I did Harvest. And then I have just worked there ever since. So it's been seven years now. So I'm already up to associate winemaker after, you know, kind of figuring out where my space is there and where my skill set is and then just learning and doing and You were yeah. promoted to assistant winemaker the following year after you yeah, took the job. Yeah, 2016. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Peyton, before I get to you, I want to I want to ask a follow kind of a follow up question. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned you kind of got in as as the growth was happening, and, and obviously Drew makes a lot of wine for a lot of people. Yes. Uh, tell me about the progression there and the progression of your of your of the business and also of your role. So we were at one winery in Beacon Hill at Beacon Hill, and I think he had four or five clients at that point. And it was really hard for me to like keep track of everybody. I was like, who, what? I don't like all these things. Like the, who? And then because there's like several people associated with every brand and then several vineyards associated with every brand sometimes. So I just sort of figured out what this was, like what this custom winemaking business was and I got really familiar with it and I just kept, I just kept doing the work and kept showing up and kept trying to learn everything and Drew is like a wealth of knowledge. So even today I still have to be like, stop, let me write that down because it'll be some crazy math thing because math's not my strength. So I have to be like, tell me that equation again so I can figure out whatever. So I just kept doing that. And 
I guess he just kept seeing talent in me and loyalty, and he was like, I see this in you, you're, and he'll tell me, you're not ready for this, and then now you're ready for this. So he, we had an intern that was like a winemaking, like a winemaker intern in 2016, and he told her, like, please just get her ready for this role. So Alice, <laughs> she did. She was like, this is all the things you need to do. This is how you prepare. These are things you need to think about. And so I was like, okay, Andrew was just like, you're in. You're assistant winemaker. Like, you're ready for this. You're gonna mess up. Great, fine. I'm like, yes, I will mess up. So, and then I just kept sticking it out. And I think that has mattered. You mentioned kind of the unique challenges of being, of, of working as a for all the custom clients. Yeah. Um, how did you sort of, what were sort of your, your, your tricks or, what, or, or tips for getting around that and understanding like working with all these different people, all these different goals, all these different vineyards? How do you kind of manage it for yourself and make sure that you're giving everyone sort of what they need? Um, visiting the vineyards and becoming familiar with each of the vineyards was really important because I could just put a place to a name and a face. and then I can see where everyone's like passion lies and where their goals lie in their vision. And that was a lot easier to like wrap my brain around. And then I have a lot of spreadsheets and I have a list of all the things. I mean, there, there's a lot, it's a lot. So, but it's, you know, we have a really solid team now of three, two other people and me and Drew. So there's just a lot of support. So like, I have someone that double checks all of my work and <laughs> to make sure that I get everything lined up perfectly. But most of the time it's just, I mean, it's just groups of people that are, have similar goals. So it's just sort of like helping them see that vision and then like seeing that vision with them and then executing on it. So it's, it's pretty fun because everyone's sort of in the same, in the same boat doing the same thing with the same goals. And Hayden, tell me, tell us, kind of take us through your sort of path uh, post Pinarash. What came next for you? Yeah, so after Pinarash, I went back into sales to kind of work the weekend so I could go through Chemeketa. And then after graduating, I worked, uh, I left for a harvest in Sonoma at Roth Winery, um, which is owned by Foley Family Estate, Foley Family Vineyards. and. They had, they had just acquired the Four Graces, which in, out in Dundee, and that's where I was working in sales. And so they basically said, what do you want to do for your career? And I said, well, I, I know I can do the sales part. I, want to, I really need to get back into production. And they're like, great, how about you work harvest in Sonoma at Roth? And I said, yeah, that would be awesome. Let's do that. And so I was sent down there kind of as a, if, you really, if things work out really well, you could probably have a permanent position if you wanted. And it was, it was you know, like a 50,000 case production facility. All the wines were, I mean, every varietal you could possibly think of. And it was, you know, their whole thing was nothing's more than $45 or something. So it was a totally different experience than Pinarash, which was a great one because it allowed me to see, oh, this is, like, this is large scale production with must pumps and, you know, seven inch lines and, um, you know, it's just, it's bulk production is what it is. And I I liked it, it was a lot of fun, it was hectic, and then I kind of was like, that's not exactly the realm that I wanna be in. So uh, I told Jess, I was like, I you know, didn't like being away from her. You know, she visited as much as she could, but um, I really, I said we could move, probably move down here, and like we could probably move to Sonoma, and I could probably stay with the company if I really wanted, but I would prefer to come back. And so that's what I did, I came back, um, and I, 
worked part-time in Four Graces again in sales. And then I had a, a connection to DuPont Winery. Um, and I had always been a big fan of DuPont and the winemaker Isabel, Isabel de Tarte. And the Baldwin family was a great, or they are a great family. And I had a connection there via for someone that I had, kind of similar to Jess's story, like, you know, I had a friend that I was working with at Four Graces who had mentioned, oh, well, if you need to get back into production, their DuPont needs someone, but it's kind of this like Swiss army knife, like you're gonna be, you know, half sales and then half seller work. And so I kind of used, finding someone that can do seller work and really good hospitality is kind of a hard thing to, to find. And so I totally used that part of my skill set to get that job. So I worked for her for about a year, um, and I was Isabel or Suzanne Baldwin was assistant winemaker, and I'm pretty sure still is to Isabel de Tarte. And so I was kind of both of their assistants. Um, and then when harvest comes, it's like you know, no hospitality, full time seller, and that was an awesome experience. And that was very much like starting to learn kind of this more old world style of winemaking. You know, like Pinterest was very modern style. Um, you know, California was ultra modern, and this was very old world. Everything is, you know, based on how things smell and taste on decisions. They're not necessarily based on numbers or spreadsheets or, you know, graphs. They're totally based on what, what does that ferment smell like? What does it need? It's different than this next ferment. What does that one need? You know, like all these different things and kind of learning how to play with the, the microbes in the cellar a little bit better. And that was a great experience, and also we tasted a lot, so I, I kind of started training my palate to these more old world, high acid style kind of wines. Um, and Detart was, or still is, I mean, I know she's very close with Veronique Druin, so I think Dr Veronique was pretty important into kind of Isabelle's style of winemaking. And so I kind of got to learn this, you know, kind of Druin-esque style of making Chardonnay and Pinot and stuff, and Malone de Vergogne, and, I, it really helped me for the next position, which was um, actually, that's right when Jess had started working with Drew. And Drew was really close, or was friends with at the time, or acquaintances at, uh, uh, with Isabel Meunier, because they had consulted together at Willamette Valley Vineyards. And so Drew had told Jess, you know, hey, Isabel Meunier is looking for an assistant winemaker for Lavinia, which is a, her high-end brand, and then some client work as well. And, introduced me to her, and it was just like, I mean, too good of an opportunity. I mean, a dream job to be an assistant winemaker within, you know, one year of a full-time position, because that was it. I mean, I had a, the only, like, besides Natalie's estate, which unfortunately doesn't quite count as much as DuPont does for this particular next role, to have one year of, you know, half and half of seller and, and sales, and to get this, you know, kind of coveted position that everyone wanted, and there were far more talented and credible people to get that job. And I, she just, again, she saw something in me and gave me a shot, um, and I accepted the position and worked start, I think my first harvest was the year we got married, it was 2016, and I worked for her as her assistant um, for, I think, five years, and then my last year with her, I was her associate winemaker. Um, which was amazing. I mean, she she did everything for me. I mean, she really gave me, you know, I, by the time I left, I was I was running all of the lab analysis. I was taking care of all of the day-to-day -day seller operations. I was, you know, the leader of Harvest with any crew that we had. 
And we made some awesome wines. I mean, the Lavinius always score really in the high 90s. All of our clients, like Megan Ann, Obain, Lazy River, Broadacre at the time, um, I might be missing one, those always did really, really well. And so learning how to make different styles of wine for each different client, and also really learning how to manage making wine for different clients, which she does in such a graceful way. Learning how to kind of tune those soft skills to be about making the, the best product you can, but also being wise as to, you know, working with the clients and to guiding the direction of, of kind of the path of the wine that they want. You can do both and feel good about yourself, but it's a very hard balance. And so she did that really well. And that was very helpful to me. Um, and then my last, the, I think it was my last year there, she basically was like, you, I think it was two years before, she said, you know, you need to probably move on. Like, I've taught you everything I can. You know, you've, I, I'd love for you to stay. I want you to stay. But, like, you got to, like, flap the wings and go. Because I, I think you're ready. You know, you need, you need more challenge. You need more things to do. And because of that, she, you know, she did allow me to make, my own wine um, for a client that I still work with today. It's a high-end Chardonnay and Pinot producer called Carta. And we make Ribbon Ridge Pinot Noir from Looney Vineyard and we make Chardonnay from Eola Amity. And she allowed me to do that, which was great because it was kind of a bench trial as to like, all right, now you're the winemaker. You're making all the decisions. It's your style. It's your path. You're ordering the barrels. You're thinking about all these things. And, you know, unfortunately, it was in 2020 <laughs> when she uh, was okay with me doing it. And I got really lucky. Um, all of our fruit that we were making for Carta ripened two days before the smoke, and I picked all of it. And so there was no smoke tracers in the Pinot, and then the Chardonnay sat out there for like a week in the smoke, and I had to be very cognizant of what was going to happen. And you know, knock on wood, like to this day, there's still the Chardonnay's great, and there's no problems, and there's no, there's minimal amount of tracers, and. Uh, nothing that we should be freaked out about. So it was certainly like for someone to have their first winemaker title in a year of 2020, which sucked. <laughs> it was horrible. But it, you know, I learned how to, to speak to my client and be like, if you don't want to do this, it's totally fine. I think we have a shot. Let's, let's take a risk. And he did. And you know, the wines turned out great. But that's all because of Isabel's training that I was able to do that. She forever will be probably my number one mentor and I'll always love her for that. And then after that, um, I was offered the head winemaking position or winemaker position for Fela in Oregon for Aaron, Aaron Jordan to be his winemaker here. Uh, and I took that in 2021. And I actually just left that company. I worked there for one year basically. And I just left that for a, a, a different opportunity, one that I couldn't refuse which was uh, Benza Vineyards. So I'll be the head winemaker at Benza starting in July. So right now I'm unemployed and I'm hanging out, <laughs> uh, which, feels, which feels great. I haven't had two weeks off in a very long time and I'm not sure what to do with myself. So it's driving her crazy, I'm sure. Um, and I start that in July. So Fela was an awesome experience. You know, getting to work with Aaron was pretty, pretty cool uh, and get to try to facilitate his vision in Oregon on his behalf and making, you know, Chardonnay and Gruner and, Gruner-Veltliner and Pinot Noir and Gamay and, you know, uh, Trousseau and getting to do all those things and working with different vessels and kind of seeing the style that he was trying to go for and helping to kind of facilitate that or guide it into the bottle is, was, a, was a really amazing opportunity. Um, and this one for Benza Vineyards is 
the opportunity to be fully in charge of the wine style. So now it's my chance to kind of take off the cuffs, so to speak. You know, I don't have, I don't have anyone telling me what they want the style to be. It is, we like what you make, do it for us and do whatever you have to do to make the best wine you can. And at the end of the day, that was my dream. What I wanted was I wanted to work for, I wanted to be a head winemaker for a brand that allowed me to do and trusted me to do whatever I wanted in the best way I possibly can. And that's this opportunity. So that's, that's where I'm at currently, besides uh, with everything we're doing with approachment too. But. Well, that was my next question. So you yeah. mentioned that's the other part of your dream, right? You want to be a headline maker. You want to start your, <coughs> excuse me, start your own brand. Yep. So at what point does approachment start to become something you consider and sort of take us through the steps of, of getting it started? Well, we have talked about it for a while. and Several years, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it can be hard to watch all these brands <laughs> coming available and like, oh, wow, this is intimidating because there's so much wine out there. It's saturated, yeah. And we're sort of like, well, why are we different? Why are we better? How can we do this better? Or why should we do this? But we thought we had a good story and we have two kind of different backgrounds in making wine. So we thought those things really complement each other well. Plus we have sold wine in the past. So we often know that some people just can't sell wine. They can make wine, but we're like, we know how to sell wine. Plus our story's good. So we just started brainstorming and my, I mean, my perspective is that we spend our day jobs making high-end Pinot and Chardonnay, and I was like, it'd be fun to make something that's like really delicious, that's not a huge commitment for a consumer. You know, it's a screw cap, it's 25 bucks, 24 bucks, it's, you know, like, it's fine. You can open it and drink it. So that was sort of our idea is like, let's just do something that's kind of fun and lighthearted, plus like, it just takes us out of making those, those like day-to-day -day Pinot and Chardonnay varietals, and like, it just changed my brain a little bit. Like it gives us a little swapped bit. it over. Yeah, and it gives us like just a diversity of things. I mean, now we get to. I mean, winemaking is all about learning, right? And it's it's fun to work with new things and different things, and yeah. different techniques and different vessels and different styles. And so, like having a break from that, from from making Chardonnay and Pinot, almost makes you kind of like appreciate it even more, right? It's like absence makes the heart grow fonder. You know, it's like <laughs> there's no making, absence. <laughs> making a skin contact Pinot Gris and then being like. Oh, okay, I feel refreshed. Like now, I'll go back and like make Chardonnay. It does kind of help to be, yeah. you know. But we also wanted to like have something that was the original idea for the. So my dad's the one that came up with the name Approachment, and it's an old, old world a word that doesn't actually really exist very much anymore. But it just means you know different approaches to things. And so our whole we're coming towards something. Yeah, coming towards something. And our whole kind of thought process was that we have two very different training, like two very different styles. Like we were trained, I was trained in like old world burgundy style and Jess was trained in more of a modern world style with Drew. And so it's kind of like, you know, we have two different things to offer. And one of the things that is fun about it is that, I mean, we do argue quite a bit. <laughs> this is, yeah, been the source of a lot of arguments. Yeah. But what's fun is that, you know, the arguments almost kind of lead <laughs> to like different ideas. Yeah. You know, and melding of two different paths kind of into one where, you know, and we wanted the, the name to represent that. So it's kind of, it's, it's both of our approaches and we're coming towards something. We're trying to figure out exactly like, where do we go with these two different styles? Um, and we decided in 2021 to like, okay, let's just do it. Let's pull the trigger. Like, let's, let's stop talking about it. Like, let's just, let's go ahead and do it. And 
so far it's been it's been an awesome success. I mean, we, we didn't make very much wine. You know, we made like 75 cases or something, but we sold out of that in a month, you know, a month and a half. And so that basically, that was the goal. The goal was to make enough, sell enough to pay the bills for the next round. And that's what we did. And so we're going to, you know, increase our production quite a bit this year because of that. And I am, I to this day still think like the, the, this wine that just brought, it's called the point of contact or point of contact, which I think Drew actually helped come Drew, up with that yeah, name. Yeah, Drew totally came up with that name. So it's a, it's a fascinating <laughs> type. He's, he's been super helpful yeah. in this whole process. He's like our number yeah. one supporter for yeah. sure. Um, I think the fact, like what Jess did with this wine, and I, she deserves all the credit because I, I really wasn't, I, I mean, I tasted with you and I helped with whatever I could, but this was 100% like her wine. And it's this fascinating skin contact Pinot Gris style where you're, you're doing something like you're, you're processing the Pinot Gris, you're, you're like distemming it, and you're putting it into a cold soak, and then you're like slowly working the skins gently to kind of extract the phenolics out of the grapes and then you're tasting it like on this, you know, 16 hour period of time. How long, what was it, intervals when you tasted? Oh, I, I was obsessed so I tasted like every several, like few hours. <laughs> I was like, go. what's yeah. happening, what's happening, what's happening? And it's like this, it's, it's different it every year. Because it was like a 36 hours of skin contact so I didn't, right. if you, like if you miss the boat, I was so worried about missing the boat and like pressing too late and having a bitter wine so I was like, is this the time, is this the time, is it now, is it right. now, is it now? And like, yeah. then Drew was like, it's now, and I was like, okay, okay, yeah, I get it, I see it, so. Yeah. So it's a little stressful at that point. Yeah, but it's a very like special kind of style of wine where if you miss the boat, it's gonna be too extracted, and just nailed it with it for sure, and this is, I think, probably gonna be the flagship for Approachment because it's a $24 bottle of you know, Pinot Gris that doesn't really quite have, a, it, it can fit into multiple different marketplaces, right? Because like, it's not really a rosé, but it's not not a rosé. <laughs> and so from a sales perspective, like you kind of almost always wanna give in an in overly saturated market that you have right now of everyone's making wine, new brands, new brands, new brands, new brands. You kinda have to start thinking about like, well, like, why me? What's my story? And why is anyone going to buy this? Like you have to be, you need to be hypercritical of yourself. Cause if you're not, and you just think that everyone's going to love it, like that's a bad thing to think. And so with this one, it fits in this kind of little interesting area where we've, you know, we've seen it sold on the Rosex Rosé section, you know, next to like Provence and, you know, Oregon Rosés. Then we've seen it sold in the Pinot Gris section next to, you know, like El Cove and Bethel Heights and all these other things. And so it's like, it, it kind of can fit wherever the person that buys it needs it to. So that was kind of the introduction wine to this brand and it's probably gonna be always our largest producer. And then now we're starting to talk about other varietals mm -hmm. and what other things can we do? Do we want to do Grenache? Do we want to do Syrah? Do we want to do, you know, um, Gamay? Do we want to do all these different things? Um, and this brand can allow, allow us to do that because it's kind of, it's all in the name and it's always going to be in the label design. I mean, each label design will be an artist that does something special for that style of wine. Um, and we can kind of, we're lucky because we have two careers and we can kind of grow it as we as we need to. Yeah. We're not 100% beholden to it. You know, if it left tomorrow, it'd be a bummer, but like we're going to be totally <laughs> fine. You know, we haven't we haven't gone all in yet on it, so we're, we're taking our time with it yeah. and we're very lucky that we're in a position where you know, Jess works with Drew and 
we get to make the wine there, and um, that's that's a pretty big benefit when yeah. you're a small company. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So thanks, Drew. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't take it away. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that it was uh, kind of a, a conflation of styles, kind of old world, new world, and then kind of the two of you. So. Uh, as you work forward, are you? Is that something you want to keep as sort of always kind of keeping both styles in mind, or do you have kind of a style for the brand that you would eventually like to see kind of a consist consistently this that style that makes any sense? Is the brand aiming for a style? Hmm. I my kind of like goal is to make it weird, like keep it a little off kilter with keeping it really fresh and clean and affordable. Um, it's right now it's kind of hard to get consistent fruit contracts so that's the other goal is to like pick skews and stick with them and like make the same three things every year but then also like have the option to play with something if there's an opportunity to get something weird or but mostly you know we want to do stuff like carbonic gamay maybe grenache like maybe some sparkling wine but it's hard like this year we kind of got screwed with the frost so we're like reinventing the the whole thing. But um, yeah, I think that's the goal is to keep it a little bit esoteric, but like fresh and clean and modern in, it, in a sense. Yeah, I think the, the style of approachment is supposed to be like the brand is about making affordable, fun, creatively crafted wines mm -hmm. that you can drink out of a mason jar or you can drink out of like an actual, like a, like a Zalto wine glass. Like you can, if you're an Edophile, you can nerd out on it. And if you're just someone who picked it up at Market of Choice in Bend and you wanna go float the river, you can do that too. So, and we don't want anything to ever be out of the price range for people to buy it uh, and not and feel like they have to sell it. This is not, these are not sellable wines. Some of them we make might be, but I think that when we, we started it, yeah. you know, everything is about creating you know, refreshing, energetic, um, affordable, and creative wines through the combined approaches of two people that work together on that. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, the, that's the focus. And that allows us to kind of do whatever we want to do. Meaning if we have a year where we, you know, again, we have a flagship wine that we will always make and it can always, if it gets distribution, great. You know, if it gets always sold out within Oregon and California, great. But it allows us to kind of make a Grenache one year, see if that's something that we really love, make it in a small volume, test it out. And if people go crazy for it and we like to make it, that's the important part, then we keep going with that. But because approachment's about different approaches and always creating things that we're proud of, that we love, we can kind of, this isn't like, you know, Druin or Serene where you always have to have a high-end Pinot and a high-end Chard mm -hmm. and bubbles. Like you don't, ha like this is, it's so much more fluid. And that's how we're trying to kind of craft the story because we don't want something that's necessarily always a dogmatic approach and that we always have this, we always do that, we always do that. Like we'd like for it to be kind of one of those things where if you really love the Grenache that we made, then you should have bought it because <laughs> we're out of it and sorry, yeah. like we almost got divorced making it. So we're gonna do something else, you know? And that's because at the end of the day, like I hate to say this. This but is the, the divorce wine. The most, uh, the most important thing about this is that it's fun for us. And if you're willing to buy that, yeah. then great. We're not, not, we're not trying okay. to get rich off of it. No. I really want to ask more questions about the divorce, but it's <laughs> a touchy place to go. Uh, well, we do no, have an idea fine. about that. We have, an, we have an idea of where we might, this would be like, 
rough, but we might, uh, we've talked about doing, <laughs> picking wine from the exact same block, but she picks when, she, Jess picks when she wants to pick, I pick when I want to pick, like Pinot Noir, and then we make it separately, and then we blend it back later. And then the, we had an idea of like or the wine not. label being like the two of us like spitting wine onto each other's faces. <laughs> and it's called like compromise or something. But we're probably not gonna do it, you know, so. It's too hard. I think it'd be fun. <laughs> Maybe, we might do it one day. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Maybe after you've had some wine. Yes, it's yeah. One of those decisions you have to make. Yeah, yeah. Your glasses. Or yep. bourbon, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned one of the things you thought was kind of a strength for you was having the sales background coming into this. So. Uh, tell me about selling your own wine for the first time, um, and as you look ahead to grow, what are your kind of thoughts on how you'd like to sell, where you'd like to sell, and sort of the, the sweet spot for how your wine will be sold? Yeah. Um, so I lived in Eugene, and I had some connections down there with wine shops. I worked at one called The Broadway. So I know Angus and I know Randy from Sundance. So I know some of the buyers down there. And I sort of, I knew this wine was gonna be available. There wasn't that much to sell, but I was like, I contacted my friends and I was like, hey, do you wanna try it? Really thinking we're gonna get like one, two bottles, six bottles. <laughs> and they're like, case, two cases, three cases, five cases. I mean, it was like case loads. And I was like, okay, this is amazing. Like. This is great. We also got access to Drew's mailing list. And because I've worked for Drew for so long, a lot of those people know me. So I was like, hey guys, this is available. You know, if you're interested, you're welcome to it. And that, that flew a lot of cases out the door too. Um, so it's just been maintaining basic accounts for bottle purchase in Eugene at um, Marche Provisions, the Broadway. Um, we're not quite at the price point to do glass pours at a lot of places, but I think we're open to it. So we don't see a lot of, we, we actually didn't even have the opportunity to go to a restaurant to try to sell the wine because we're out. we didn't yeah. have any. We don't even have any. Yeah. But eventually that's, I would like to get glass pours at certain places just because this is a nice wine that like goes with lots of food. Um, and it's rosé and it's a good summer drinker. But um, yeah, I like, I don't necessarily want to be in Safeway or Rite Aid, but I wouldn't mind being in like market of choice and, um, like new seasons or something like that. Yeah. So I don't know. We're kind of open and we don't have a tasting room. So direct sales are a little bit harder for us, but we do have, you know, places to sell the wine, like the winery and stuff, but mostly it's going to be like retail for now, unless we go bananas. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess like the, one of the good things about being in the business for a long time and working for a lot of different people and just being immersed in it is you make a lot of really great connections and connections are pretty much everything in this business. And when you taste enough, when you talk, if you go out dinner enough, if you really get to know the chefs and you get to know the restaurant buyers, the wine buyers, if you get to know you know where, you, where your local markets where you buy wine, like. People, you start to develop these relationships and people become very interested in with what you're doing. And so that has certainly benefited us. And again, like, mm -hmm. you know, from, from how much wine we actually made, like, it's not, a, it's not a lot of wine. But to sell out 75 cases worth between four accounts in a month and a half is amazing. And it certainly is um, 
representative of the relationships that Jess built with Eugene when she worked down there and, and worked with who I worked with in Portland. And so it, it certainly helps. That's the kind of the, you know, that's the first step. I, I think that if you're able to continue to sell, you know, just because someone buys three cases of wine doesn't mean they're going to buy another three cases of wine. So it's sometimes it doesn't even matter if your product is what you promise. Like if, even if your product is the best thing in the whole world they've ever tried, it's not that doesn't necessarily always mean that they're going to do it again because there's a lot of amazing other other amazing products that people want to buy. So keeping things, keeping in touch with them, being consistent in communicating with them. You know, like the let the more you talk about the sale, the less it's going to happen. So, like, just remember that you're you're friends, and this is why you're even the wine's even here to begin with. You know, maybe they like the wine, but like they like you, and so sell yourself, not the product necessarily, and talk about other things. And trying to maintain that, I think, is kind of the key. And I would I would love personally, like, you know, I think with the wine has the point of contact wine has the ability because it's so flexible of a wine. I mean, you can drink it room temperature, you can drink it cold. You can drink it as a rosé, you can drink it as a Pinot Gris, you can drink it as both. Like, you can have it with food, you can have it with anything else. I mean, really, it's like, it goes with or without food just as well as it doesn't. And so, I think I would love to see something like this. I'm looking at like the orange wine market and the rosé market and, you know, Mark Ryan, I helped make his Pinot Noir with Isabel for his Megan Ann project for years and he had this Mr. Pink rosé that was like, you know, maybe I think when I, he first I first started like working with him, it was like ten thousand cases or something, and it's like I mean it's well over, you know, eighty for sure of just like rosé, and he did an incredible job marketing it. But it's also this big shift right now where people want skin contact out of their wines, and there's always a market for Chardonnay and for Pinot and Pinot Gris that's traditionally made. But starting you know with all of the the new brands coming from Portland and kind of all these new styles, it's they're kind of doing the legwork for introducing new tactics of making wine. And I think that it's not out of the possibility to try to have this be our one wine that's in distribution that can actually like, we can make four or 5,000 cases of and it can sell in, in Texas and it can sell in California and it can sell on the East Coast, you know, in Florida or whatever else, like Arizona, anywhere hot, like <laughs> just send it there, you know? So I just, I, that's how I, I kind of think about it. And then I think about like doing the other small things like Grenache and whatever else is, you know, it's kind of our trade-off, like this gets to go into the market and then we get to kind of make smaller production things that only people that want to come to the tasting room or that want to, you know, buy locally can get. But I think it has, that's kind of the way I'm thinking about it at this point in time from a marketing and sales perspective. It's ambitious. Got to be ambitious. Yep. So it's like air conditioning wine. Anywhere the air conditioning <laughs> wine, yeah. wine needs to be. It was made with Freon, yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah. It's all natural. Yep. So tell me about, a little bit about uh, sort of we talked about 2020 a little bit earlier. I'm curious about your kind of your each of your respective experiences during 2020, um, dealing with the pandemic, dealing with 2020 harvest. Uh, tell me a little bit about how that went for you and sort of the adjustments and changes you had to make, um, and how you kind of came out the other side of that of that year and that I guess that continued experience. It mm. sucked. Good, 2020 right sucked. Um, the harvest was, you know, everyone was masked up. Everyone, you know, we had like these crazy, um, like 
plastic dividers. dividers. We had multiple sinks, gloves. I mean, just this like crazy, like protective gear, protective protocols that were just like so inconvenient with making so inconvenient. And then we had fires and it was like, for us it was scary because like, Peyton's parents got evacuated and our house is tiny. So they're like, we're coming over. So we start harvest with the in-laws like in our space, like, and we're like, oh my God, this is like really scary and stressful and it's harvest. And like, they're all right here, like all the time. I thought it was great. I loved it. It was great. If they're watching this, I, I just want to say that I loved every minute of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they were like, we're ready to get out of here. Like it was, it was just like stress. That was stressful. Like I was just like, oh my God, you're home. Like. Um, and then, you know, the fires, and it was the first time we've ever experienced something like that here. And I don't think anybody knew what to expect. Nobody knew what to do. Um, and we, you know, we made a lot of wine in 2020. And, you know, we had to filter out a lot of wine, and we were able to salvage a lot of wine and make good wines. And then we also had to be like, that stuff's not good, bye. Um, so, you know, it was, it just sucked. It sucked. Yeah. One of the best things, I mean, the smoke, I think there's two, two ways to look at that, that question, because, or I'll diagnose it in two different ways, because the pandemic was an, uh, basically, it dehumanized, like dehumanized a lot of things we do, right? Like we're at home, we're recluses, like we're not doing anything with other people. And wine is social. It should be. And so you kind of remove that, and that makes it harder to see the purpose and why you're crafting it. So that's kind of the first psychological issue. And the second one is that when you make wine, it's also kind of this social thing too, because you're either working with you know, a winemaker, assistant winemaker, cellar master, cellar assistant, you know, tasting room crew, whatever. Like there's a team of people. It's not just one winemaker by themselves, generally. I mean, they, there are, there are, that does happen. But in the broad sense, it's a team. And you have this you know, special time of the year where it's, it only happens once, and you're fully masked up, you're six feet apart, you know, you're taking turns, smelling a ferment, removing your mask, putting it back on. And it just, it felt like this just really weird, sterile environment that wasn't full of, you know, joy. Um, because of this risk of, oh man, like if I get COVID, like Izzy is by herself with two interns, you know? And if Izzy gets COVID, I'm by myself with two, two interns. And if one of us really gets COVID, we all might not even be able to come to the winery at all. And so the pressure of like anyone getting it, halting back everyone's progress. And then, I mean, we had backup plans. We were like, you know, I worked, I worked at the studio, so I was friends with so many amazing people there. And, you know, I went to Andrew Rich and I was like, hey, it felt like it was like we were picking teams for like, football or something, like a park, because I walked up to him and I was like, hey, do you have a backup? Yeah, a backup plan. He goes, oh yeah, I already talked to Wynn, we have a backup deal. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> damn it, okay, so I like went to someone else. I was like, Jerry, do you have a backup? Oh yeah, I got a backup. And I'm like, we're gonna be the last kids picked on the, like, no one's gonna pick us out on the playground. Like, this sucks, you know? And it's just a weird thing, you know? And like went to Anthony, I was like, you have a backup plan? He goes, uh, 
No. And I was like, great. How about, can we be your backup? Like, if, if I get sick, can you make the wines? And if you get sick, we can make your wines. And, you go, and it's just a weird thing, you know? So that's like the first part. And then you have, you throw the smoke on top of it. And it just felt like an like apocalypse now. It was like, you know, you're driving to these vineyards and no one's out there because the quality of air is so bad that you shouldn't even be out no there. No one can pick the fruit. And it just, no one can pick the fruit. And yeah. it's just like, no one's, you know, no one's pulling leaves. Like, no one's mowing, no one's doing anything because it's just, Black. It's just black, and there's ash <laughs> all over the, you know, the vines and the grapes, and it's, it, yeah, I mean, it, it's horrible, and then it just, it felt like you were already detached from each other with this pandemic, and then now you felt like you really didn't even want to leave the house, because it just looked like the world was ending, because it was just like this crazy haze of red and black and orange just everywhere, and yeah, it was absolutely horrible. And honestly, like, you know, I won't speak too much to what happens with the wine that gets, you know, infected with the guayacol and stuff like that. But what I would say is, you know, there were a lot of people that took chances and there were a lot of people that didn't. And if there is a smoke event, you need to be fully aware that you have a very high probability of getting it. And getting it out of the wine is, I mean, Jess did hundreds of things. I did hundreds of things. We did so many trials. We tried so many, everything. We tried everything, you know, and like we're, like you said, we're new to this. We were, we kind of like, no one had any idea. We were completely ignorant to this. And at the studio, we would have these, you know, people would come from everywhere because the studio is kind of like this little university of wine thing, you know, and it's just like everyone would drive over and bring their wines and their ferments and their samples and be like, you try it, do you taste smoke? Try it, do you, do you taste mine? Do you taste smoke? And it's like, you know, it's a super scary thing because as winemakers, we're trying to make the best product we can. And normally if we sense reduction, we can fix some things. EA, we can fix something, you know, even Britannomyces, you know, there's, there's ways of handling it. Like all these spoilage microorganisms or off characteristics can be figured out in many different ways. And this compound, which is completely unique to what is burning in Oregon, which we have everything. Like we have trees, we have grass, we have black, like we have every kind of tree you could think of, plus every type of grass, plus every type of weed and brush. And so it's like, we have it all. We have every kind of smoke compound you possibly can find. And just when you think things are going well, you don't, you don't smell anything and maybe we're lucky and like, then all of a sudden those things cleave off and they become free. And all of a sudden you have that, you know, this slight hint of like smoke or barbecue sauce or ashtray or whatever it is. And you know, you just worked you know, it's like, it's basically 20 hours per ton to think of like man hours is about what it comes out to. So you just, you know, worked 160 hours on something and now it shows that it has it. So yeah, it was. It was a huge learning year, which was yeah. cool to look back and be, you know, we tried all these different things like no new wood, yes, new wood, whole cluster, no whole cluster and like some, there was no conclusion to that. Like we couldn't figure out if one thing worked better than another, but like it was just, it was one of those, like you gotta think on your feet and try to like preemptively handle this. Yeah. And then like keep handling it and seeing what happens over time. It's And I think it was like huge learning curve for me, which I'm thankful for, but I hope we never have to do that again. I never want to do that again. Yeah. Yeah. No fire pandemic 
at the same time. It was horrible. And just like seeing, you know, well, yeah, neither one would be great. Preferably not at the same time. But just seeing everyone, you know, ha like, I mean, I saw multiple people crying. Like, it was just a very, you know. It was really scary. I don't know how else to think about it, like music terms, what I would say would be like, you recorded like the best album you've ever made and then like your masters get wiped off the of Pro Tools or something. Be like, <laughs> you know, but even then you could recreate it, maybe, you know, not this way, you only get one shot. So yeah, it was horrible. So uh, I wanna, <laughs> curious about, uh, before we kind of talk about the industry more in general, I'm curious about after all these years making, all, making and selling all these wines for all these different people, you finally have your own bottle. Uh, what was it like having your own bottle of wine to take out of the market? It was amazing. It felt awesome for me. I felt like a million bucks. Just because people received it so well and were so excited, you know, like I just kind of went out there like, cool, here I am with another wine, you know? And everyone's like, what, this is rad, this is amazing. People are loving it. It's, yeah, it's been super awesome. Like, Yeah, it's felt great. I mean, you, we put a lot, of, a lot of time and effort into it and the designing of the packaging and everything. And so of course, like it's a very personal thing and you want it to be received well. Like you don't want to bring it to someone and be like, this, this is it. This is what you worked all these years for. Like <laughs> we really had higher expectations for you, you know, like, and that didn't happen, which is always positive. So yeah, it was super fun. And yeah. I know you love, you love going out and presenting it and selling it. And yeah, uh, and I do too, but yeah, it's been fun just because I, I had no idea what to expect. It's like, sure. I know how to sell wine a little bit, but I also was like, this guy sees seven wines in an hour. Like, why is this one gonna be better? Why is he gonna give a shit about this wine or whatever? And people are just like obsessed. They love it, they really love it. And so I was like, oh, okay, I guess I can do this. So it's, it felt, it feels great. It's exciting. And I just like, I definitely feel the like bug to like keep doing it and like growing it and without getting too crazy. I think a lot of people have good luck their first year, so I'm hoping it's not just luck, that it's because we're really cool and we made a good wine. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about uh, kind of your entry into the industry. I'm curious, looking back now, what are the, the biggest changes you've seen in, in Oregon wine from sort of your introduction to it to now? And what does the industry look like to you now in 2022 uh, compared to what it did when you started? Um, well, there's a lot more wineries and a lot more vineyards and bottle prices are a lot higher. Just growth in general. I mean, when I think the first wine club my parents ever joined was Willa Kinsey and that was, you know, like 20 years ago. Um, just the sheer amount of interest that people have in this, in this industry. I also think that the style of wine is also starting to kind of, Oregon's finding its own style. Like there was a time, and I'm pro I don't want to offend anyone when I say this, but I, there was a time where I think you could pretty much kind of go to a lot of the old school wineries in Oregon and, and pretty much expect kind of what they did behind the scenes fermentation wise. Like for the most part, it was kind of, you know, two punch downs a day, press it when it's dry and you're good to go. And I think that, you know, just, the health of, of the industry and the growth of it has brought a lot of very talented people here. And the people that started a long time ago have become more talented as well. Like just everyone has learned so much more 
and we're becoming a more mature industry. And through that, you know, the winemakers have, for the most part, have always been, the, the winemaking community has always been pretty strong. And it is social, and it's very much like when we do, you know, that's why we have so many tech panels and tech tastings and all these things, because we want to get together and we want to, we're creative. We, we, we're artists in a lot of ways, and, and we, we want to be more creative about things, and we kind of want to know, like, I tried this. Did you try this? What did you get? No, I tried this. I did it this way, and I found it to work better. You know, those things. And if you can put your ego aside and be very humble about things and modest, you can have this really incredible network of people to learn from. And I think as an industry, we're making some of the best wines in the world. And it's because of this growing network of just the more success you have, the more talent is gonna come here. And the more talent that's here, that is here, the more talent you can learn from. And I think we're always learning as winemakers. And I think that's pretty amazing. Um, and I just see, I mean, I do see the business, the industry becoming, you know, I mean, we have certainly a lot more California influence these days, which I know frustrates some people. I don't see it that way, personally. I think that, yeah, we're getting, land is being acquired, companies are being purchased, but not in a hostile environment. You know, um, people are willingly selling their properties and their brands that they have worked on for a very long time and that they spent a lot of money on. And now they have an exit plan and they can pass something on to another company in a correct manner. And that brings, you know, more publicity to us and that brings more growth to us. And people always kind of worried about like, well, what about the small winery? What about the small guy? What about the small producer? And it's kind of like, I think, and I've said this forever, I, there will always be a market for small boutique experiences. That is not, that's not going away. You can go to Napa today and sure, you can go to like some of the Disneyland, you know, of wine out there, but you can also find a 1500 case cab and Merlot producer that is off the beaten path and you can have that experience and they can be profitable and they can make money. Natalie's estate has been in business for a very long time. They have, they have enough club members that they can press one button and sell a quarter of their production every quarter. That's impressive, that's longevity. Not even the largest wineries have that. So I think like the amount of growth that comes in benefits them because as Kendall Jackson comes in and Jadot comes in, Drew and I think like they're almost helping get more people, more traffic here. And when that traffic does get here and that interest gets here, of course they're gonna to wanna to go to Stoller and of course they're gonna to wanna to Pinterest and of course they're gonna to wanna to go to Grand Marine, but they're also gonna to wanna to get local recommendations and they're also going to want to go to something that's a different experience. And when they come to your experience, it, it helps, every, it's, a, it's this awesome symbiotic relationship. And I know, it, I don't think a lot of people see it that way between small producers and large producers, but I would argue that that's why Oregon is so awesome, is that throughout the culture of Oregon's wine business, we started out as this like just really small boutique production kind of area that not everyone knew about. And now we're this really big internationally known thing, but we haven't left all of our small producers behind, like behind either. They still exist, and they work in a symbiotic relationship with large producers as well, or at least they do currently. Can't predict the future, the future but that was would be kind of the biggest things I think for Oregon. Yeah. I I definitely agree with everything you said. I think all the outside investment is helping 
the Oregon wine industry. It's a little intimidating, kind of crazy, but there's also this like shift that I've noticed, or maybe I'm just paying attention to like more sustainable winemaking and more organic farming. And I think that's like totally grown a lot in the last like five years, where that's like really becoming a priority for a lot of wine growers and a lot of winemakers is making sure that like the crews are taken care of and that they're getting paid a lot more than they used to and that the farming is sustainable and organic and we're not putting a bunch of shit in our on our grapes and in the wines and stuff. So it's, it feels like that's a really big push right now. And I think that will start to like kind of level out and there'll be more practical ways of farming. And I think that the, yeah, there's just the sustainability thing is like really blowing up. So that's one, that's definitely something that's happening and it's pretty cool to, to watch it. Yeah, that's agree, yeah. that's everything you said. So having just said that you can't predict the future, I'm going to ask you to predict the future. <laughs> uh, tell me about what you see coming next to Oregon Wine, either something you expect, you're hoping for, maybe something you're fearful of as you look ahead to the next few years of Oregon's wine industry. Um, well, I think the next big step for Oregon is sparkling. I think that... That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry. It's exciting. Um, I, yeah, I think that's the next big step. I mean, I think that one of the things we all have to remember about our business here in Oregon is that we are a very, we're very small and in comparison to the old world, people don't, they're just getting to the point to when, when they think of Oregon, they immediately relate it to Chardonnay and Pinot. Like they immediately correlate those things. Like that's finally, like that takes time. And so does the next thing that you want to introduce, right? It takes time. You know, you think of Burgundy, you think of Pinot and Chardonnay, bam, 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 done. You know, you think of Bordeaux, you've got it in your head, what you think of internationally as a wine drinker, it is, the, the marketing and branding behind that is exceptional. And it's exceptional just because they've been doing it for way longer than we have. And we're at that point now, we're finally at that cusp where like we have earned our, our stripes to have Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And I would argue even honestly, like I think Chardonnay is like still just a little bit behind Pinot, but, but it's almost there. And people like Lingua Franca and are helping with that. But I think that the next step is for sparkling because we have an insane amount of sparkling that is going to just flood the market pretty soon. And it is really good. I mean, we have all the varietals you need to do it and the perfect climate. I mean, everything. And I just, and, and even with sparkling in bad years, it's sometimes easier to make sparkling because you have to pick it so early that you know, from like a, from a, a futuristic standpoint, I mean, if we had to deal with, you know, God forbid, like any other horrific, I'm not going to say the words, climate events, like that might be a saving grace, you know? And when a year like this, when you have frost, you're going to have a lot of your primary buds wiped out and you'll have a lot of your secondaries that are trying to push and replace those. And you might not want to make, you know, $85 Pinot Noir out of those secondaries or Chardonnay for the same, but you can with sparkling. And so it's a, it's, I think in the future, Oregon is, that's the next step. It's the, there, we're now going to be, you know, a sparkling house in, in the Northwest. And when we reach that, it's going to take some time to get the recognition because now we are fully directly competing with a lot of people and we're selling our, our price points of, of, you know, sparkling are comparable to what high end Vouv and Dom is. 
And there's also price points of cheaper champagne that are cheaper than ours. And that's going to be the interesting part. Like, it took a very long time to pinpoint what the price of Pinot and Chardonnay should be in Oregon. And the sparkling scene, I think, is going to have to do the same thing. And Argyle's been doing it for forever. And there's a reason why they have a, you know, a $30 bottle of Brut, and then they can go all the way up. But I think there's about to be a, real, like a ton of sparkling coming out. I mean, Andrew Davis is um, my mentor's husband you know, for Radiant Sparkling. And he's directly responsible for this massive amount of wine we're about to have. And I mean, I listened to him talk about it, and he's super inspirational on it. And I mean, he really he makes incredible stuff. But there's going to be like, I mean, all the projects he's listening to me, I'm like, that is a lot of wine. And that's all going to hit soon. So I think that's like the next big milestone for Oregon, um, for sure. Yeah. I agree with yeah. that. I also think Chardonnay is like Chardonnay too, really yeah. about to explode like hard. And like we're making a lot of good Chardonnay in Oregon, but I don't feel like anyone knows about it yet. Or like it's about to get really crazy and awesome. But yeah, sparkling yeah. wine, which I'm super excited about, it's my favorite wine, um, is totally going blowing up in Oregon, which is great. Yeah. And you know, we have these cool, yeah, we have these cool vintages where we're like, this is perfect for sparkling wine. Some yeah. some fruit doesn't ripen the way that we need it to for Pinot. Yeah. So. Yep. Yeah. I think experiences too. I mean, if you look at how the industry has grown from an experience perspective of, you know, back in the day, you would just show up to a tasting room and it was a $10 tasting fee and you had a view and you had a taster manager and that, that was it, right? And then that kind of evolved to like, we got to offer food, you know, and then that kind of evolved to everyone has a view, everyone has a $15 tasting, everyone has food, what do we do next? And so you start looking at like what Stoller's done, or you look at Big Table Farm, or Antiquum, or um, Hayu, like, you know, whether- Antiquaterra. Antiquaterra, yeah. like, you know, I think the next thing is to try to customize the experience of, of what we're doing here. And that's a big, that's a really important factor. You can make the best wine in the world, but, if you don't sell it, you're drinking it alone. And so you got to create something that's like, that's remarkable. And I think we all are a little bit desensitized to the things that we used to love. So, you know, I used to think like going to White Rose and sitting at the top of that hill was like the best thing you could ever do. And, you know, like, I'm not so, I mean, it, that'll never get old by any means, but there are some experiences out there where they're so exclusive, they're so up to you, and they're fairly affordable for what you're getting, where you could go into, you know, uh, what's, the, what's the winery called in, uh, that David works for, David Martinez? Oh, Abbott Claim. Yeah, I mean, their private experience is exceptional, and you're inside, like, the whole time. And there's, like, this cool Oculus that's, like, shooting down light on you, and you're in this, you know, library room, and you have this beautiful food section of things, and then, champagne. you know, champagne and all this stuff. It's like, soda is another good example. I mean, yeah, they have a view, but you're greeted with sparkling at the car, and then they've kind of curated this experience to be everything that they want their image to be, and when you leave, you feel that, and you also feel Oregon, how special it is at the same time. So I think, like, if you look at the growth of what's happened from an experience perspective, you can do a lot in Oregon. 
that you can't necessarily do other places because of the weather, because of the environment, because of the views, because of the lush greenery, because of all the trees. Like, I mean, I'm surprised I haven't seen like, a, honestly, a tasting room treehouse. Like, I know Vista Hills has one, they call that. It's like not what I'm thinking, but I'm just saying there's so much, there's so many things that you can do here and to watch the growth of just a $10 flat tasting fee come in if you're like art wine, great, buy the wine, don't, to like now, I mean, I'm very, I'm, I love, I think that's like the most exciting thing for me. I can't wait to see what, from a marketing perspective, what the next cool experiences will be here because we're going to have to have those in order to sell these yep. thousands of cases of sparkling that are about to come out. So the I can't tourism, wait to see it. The yeah. tourism is going to be really exciting. It's going to be This will be a destination to come yeah. taste wine and, you know, we're getting a really good restaurant scene now in wine country. So I think that's yeah, going to be really are, fun for McMinnville at yeah. least. Yeah. Talked a little bit already about kind of what comes next for for your brand. I'm curious if you have anything else kind of you're looking ahead to for approachment or anything else sort of for the two of you as you look ahead for your own for your wine careers outside of the brand uh, that you're kind of looking forward to at this time. Um, well, approachment, we have some Grenache in the pipeline and trying to figure out what we're going to do next year to add another skew to the lineup that will be consistent and we're just going to pound the pavement again and keep selling it um, lo like locally and then see what happens. Yeah. We're also talking about adding a second um, tier to the brand. Oh yeah, that's an idea. Um, which would be called Audio Vine. And so I obviously, given my background, I have a massive like infatuation with Chardonnay. It's my, it's my favorite thing to make. And, but I don't want to take it in anything away from what approachment is. And so we've talked about having, um, you know, approachment always will be this fun, energetic, easy to drink, affordable wines with creative, like creative outlets. And then I th we're talking about doing a second tier that would be, it's kind of its own brand under, under the umbrella of approachment called Very AudioVine. It would, it would- Small production. Super small production. It would just be only Chardonnay, period. And it would try and, I mean, again, fruit, like Jess said, fruit contracts are kind of, you know, hard to come by right now. People are still trying to make up their tonnage and then with the frost, it doesn't help. But um, I am certainly thinking about either doing a kind of a, a three tier, uh, blend idea, working with different vessels and concrete and big oak casks and fudras. Um, and then I'm also thinking about doing three different vintage single vineyard Chardonnays. But basically, AudioVine would be kind of my outlet to really go f just crazy on Chardonnay. And to have that be when we do have a tasting room or we have a space to have that kind of be the benefit or an, an added, again, part of the experience thing, like an added thing to coming and tasting approachment is that you could have this other little lineup that's kind of in the background um, that would be kind of my little nerdy project, um, but with approachment still being kind of the reason, approachment would be the reason you come and AudioVine would kind of like be the reason to, to stay in, a, in an interesting way. A surprise. A surprise. surprise bonus. Yeah. 
but that's, I mean, we're so, you know, I wish we could kind of give you more in, in, like on it, but that's, you know, it's such a young brand that that's, you know, we're kind of like, yeah, we're going to make the same thing and then we're just going to hopefully sell it, you know, and, and we're just going to keep doing that until we're told to stop or we lose money. So, yeah. yeah. We're kind of caught off guard by the like volume of sales. So we're like, oh, I guess we have to like figure make this more. out. Ah, yeah. Like, what do we do? Right. It's an interesting so it was thing. A good, it was a good problem. You but. have to have... You have to have you have to make enough wine to make money off of. But if you sell all that wine, you need to have extra to make sure you can hold your accounts over so no one takes your spot. But if you make too much and you overextend what you thought people wanted, now you're left with all this wine. And so it's this really fine balance of how much wine do we make that we know we can sell and we'll recoup all of our costs and pay for next year, and then how much are they going to want to purchase continually, and what are we willing to risk, what's our margin of error on that realm? And this year was a great way to have all that information in a spreadsheet and calculate the percentage on which if we were to make double the production, triple the production, and keep the accounts that we had, and if they took a 10% loss on everything, where does that factor us in on how much we actually should make? Because it's not always about what you want to make. That's the other thing. It's like, yeah, I want to make you know Chardonnay that costs $150, and I get it from the nicest vineyard in Oregon, and I use all this expensive stuff, and the upfront cost is going to be 50 grand. <laughs> you know, I want to do that, but like I can't. You know, so I want to make 10,000 cases of that wine, but it's probably not the best idea right off the bat. You know, <laughs> so. I heard you mention tasting room a couple. Of times. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, is that something you're planning for? We're thinking about it. We're looking at some things. Yeah, I mean everything's kind of on the table. Yeah, we have a, so we're very, very interested in um, the river area. We don't know quite yet if we just want to live there or if we want to um, have a vacation house there or if we want to sell wine there, but we are fascinated with that area. Uh, it's up and coming. It is, there's a lot of very interesting wines that are being made out there, lots of different varietals. Um, you know, it's high elevation and it gets cold. It also gets hot at the right time. The wind access is exceptional, and it's perfect for a lot of white varieties and hardier reds. And so I think that, you know, the stuff that we're interested in making that we've talked about already, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, Grenache, you know, Gamay, those would do really well there. Um, so we are kind of interested in figuring out at when we want to have a home for our tasting room, when it makes financial sense to have a home for a tasting room, where would that would be? And, and Hood River is an interesting, an interesting location for it. Um, you know, our day jobs are obviously here, so that would that would make it. We'd have to hire someone. But <laughs> again, like that's you know, Long that's down the road. Yeah, having a spot here right now, we're allowed to use. Uh, Drew lets us use his tasting room for uh, sales, um, along with my client as well. So it it works out well. But we would like to have our own experience, and we have some pretty interesting ideas on how to make that experience different than anything else you've kind of, you've had. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's probably three or four years, five years away, just because if we are able to make money off this, which we are currently, we are profitable, if we're able to continue that margin and keep growing, the good news about the style of winemaking is it has fairly low overhead. I mean, all of the technique, all the, the special sauce that goes into it, is really just intellectual property, right? Which wasn't free when you earned it and had you know to clean drains for hours, <laughs> but it, it doesn't cost anything now. And we don't use 
any new oak. You know, we basically have a stainless steel, we, have, we work with stainless steel. We have stainless steel tanks that last forever until someone drops it. And the fruit that we buy is high quality fruit, but it's very good, it's very, very well priced. And for our price point, you know, we're not looking to buy 10,000 an acre Temperance Hill or Nisa or something like that. You know, we're looking for things that um, we can manipulate into what we would like for them to be. But the most, ex the, really the special magic behind the wines, the intellectual property of how to make the skin contact Pinot Gris, how to do carbonic correctly, how to make reductive style Chardonnay, stuff like that. That's all, that's all the important stuff. And we are profitable now. And so if we continue our growth pattern, you know, I realize the first year is lucky, but if we can continue to do the same thing, then in five years we would have the capability, if we wanted to, to potentially have a tasting room or rent a spot or something like that. Um, and the question then becomes, do we want to have a tasting room or do we want to <laughs> continue the success into distribution? And I don't know yet. Like Jess said, it's all on the table. Yeah. Everything's on the table. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. yeah. Pretty exciting it is. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. pretty fun. That's my job. I'm like, oh, we could buy a spot in Sun River. We could buy a He's place in Hood River. We can go. We can do it in Bend. Yeah. We can do it here. We can do that. And Jess is kind of always like, God. I'm like, what capsules do you want? <laughs> do you like these capsules? Yeah. So my job is to be like, the, <laughs> I'm the cheerleader. I'm the like, this is great. You're the big picture. Let's go. You know, yeah. and Jess is the more realistic one that's like, maybe we shouldn't buy, you know, like an RV and travel around the entire country and quit our jobs. Maybe we should stay. Oh, yeah, that's doing, also you know? on the table. Yeah. If you're listening, Ben says, yeah, just kidding. yeah, exactly. We're just kidding. We wouldn't do that. Picture this like giant whiteboard at your house. Like, ideas on it. Like, yeah. Yeah. Every day. We do have a whiteboard. Yeah, we actually. do have a whiteboard. Yeah. I don't know. How did I know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> thank you both so much. Yeah, thank you. Very thank much. you. Sorry yeah. coming down and down to, to join us, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Awesome. awesome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.